We are in the middle of a series, and so uh, myself and Pastor Nathan and my dad are preaching this series on the life of David. And so in this series, we've covered quite a bit of ground so far in David's life. And we've talked about David being a shepherd boy and how he was forgotten out in the field. He was the the eighth son of Jesse that Jesse uh, totally forgot about, right? And so Jesse just throws him out in the field, forgets about him. But Samuel comes in and recognizes him and and anoints him as the future king. And then we talked about how uh, he went out and fought Goliath and he killed the giant. And then we talked about how he was an outcast and he was an outlaw and he was running for his life. And today we're finally getting to the point where David becomes king. And so that's where we're going to pick up our story today. I, I do also real quick want to welcome the Headleys. Um, they're here with us. Nathan, um, Pastor Nathan's parents are here today. And so Greg and Joy are here and so we're so glad to have you guys. I told him before, I said, great, another preacher. I said, now I'm nervous. Now I'm nervous. It's not, it's not enough that I have to preach in front of my own dad, uh, but now I have to preach in front of Nathan's dad. So it makes it even worse today. So if I fumble over my words today, just know it's not my fault. Um, so we talked about how, how David's gone through this whole process and, and kind of one of the keys that we've talked about. And I want this to really hit home with everyone, um, even though I'm not really going to talk about it today. I want you to remember this part. The, the keys to this whole series has been that David was anointed as, as a young guy, but it's not until he's in his 30s that he becomes king. And so we've been saying this week after week that there's this whole process that we have to go through. And some of us get frustrated when God puts us through a year process or through, through a few months process. But David went through possibly 20 years worth of a process before he saw the fulfillment of what God was going to do. And this is a theme throughout the scriptures. Uh, Moses went through a process. Joseph went through a process. Jesus went through a process. There's this process where God works in our lives over a period of time to prepare us for what he wants to do. So I just want to throw out at you real quickly, just the main theme is be patient when you're in the process. Some of you are in a process right now, and you need to be patient in that process and know that God's still working, even if you don't recognize that. Amen? So we're going we're gonna to get... Uh, Chapter 5 of 2 Samuel is where we're going to be today. We're going to go through the whole chapter. I may skip a few verses just to save time because of redundancy or things that don't really pertain to what, to what matters. And, and now explaining that to you, I've just wasted all the time that I would have saved skipping those verses. So here we go. Um, so we pick up the story in chapter 5. Here's what's happened. David has become king of Judah. All right. So Israel as a nation is divided into 12 tribes. And um, those 12 tribes come together as one nation called Israel. And one of the tribes, Judah, has now claimed David as their king. And so they've kind of broken off from the rest of the nation. And they said, David's our king and we're going to serve David. The problem with that is, is the rest of the 11 tribes, they choose a son of Saul named Ishboseth, And they take him as their king. And so then it creates a civil war for for like five years, they're in a civil war between the, the two parts of the nation. Well, eventually, the son of Saul dies, and when he dies, Israel comes to their senses, and they decide to go find David. And that's where chapter 5, verse 1 picks up. It says this, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought, Israel, uh, brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be a shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince 
over Israel. I just want to pause right here, and this is basically how the sermon's going to go today. We're going to pause every so often. We're going to talk about a couple of verses at a time. I want to pause for a second, and I want to just show you really quickly the gospel um, in this passage. It's amazing to me to see the gospel and how God weaves the same story throughout scriptures all the way through, but I want to see the gospel for just a second. First of all, uh, you're going to find yourself in Israel today. You and I, we find ourselves in Israel. We are like the Israelites. And, and before we come to Christ, we've been serving another king. We've been serving a king of disobedience, right? Saul, uh, Saul's son, Saul was disobedient. His son Ishbosheth was a son of disobedience. And we find ourselves serving a son of disobedience whenever we're not serving Christ. Whether we're serving ourselves or serving the devil, whoever we're serving, we're not serving Christ. And so we are in disobedience. But they come to find David who throughout scriptures, David and Jesus are compared quite often. And so they come to find David. And and here's what they say to David. They said, you are bone and flesh. You are bone and flesh. You're just like us. You're just like us. And then they said, and you led Israel in and out. Those are, those are military campaigns. That's, that's where, where David has proven himself as a victorious leader. So two things they say about, about David. They say that you're just like us and you're a victorious leader. Isn't that exactly who Christ is? The Bible says that Jesus came and he put on flesh. The word became flesh in John chapter 1. He became just like us. And then not only that, but he led us to victory on the cross. So, so Jesus and, and um, David are very similar in this story. But then they said, uh, the Lord said to you, you will be the, the uh, shepherd over the, my people Israel and prince over Israel. And isn't Jesus called the great shepherd and the prince of peace? Isn't that cool how you can see the gospel in a random story in the Bible about David and some people from Israel, but you can see the gospel intertwined throughout the entire book. And so, so they said, you're just like us, you're victorious, and you are the shepherd and prince. And, and it brought to mind this, this verse out of Hebrews chapter 2. If you don't mind, I'm going to read a couple of verses out of Hebrews 2, so we're jumping ahead. But it says this, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood... The Son, talking about Jesus, also became flesh and blood. You're just like us. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil. That's victory, right? In and out, taking him in and out. Who had the power of death? Verse 15. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. And we also know that the son did not come to help the angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Right off the bat, before we, I mean, we're only two, two verses in, and we already got a gospel message being preached to each and every one of us. And I just want to say from the very beginning of this message, before we get into the rest of it, which I feel like today is set up perfect for this church. I feel like God has something special for you today um, because I already knew what the songs and, and even the worship and the word are all intertwined today. We didn't do that on purpose. I believe God did that for, for you and I today. But, but right from the get, I want you to see this, that God is saying, hey... If you find yourself serving a son of disobedience, you find yourself not serving Christ, you find yourself in a place where he's not the the prince of your life, the shepherd over your life, then we're giving you an option today right right from the beginning 
that you can, you can submit yourself to him. And I want you to see the next part of the gospel in verse 3. It says, So all the, leaders of, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant. If you're underlining today, underline that word covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David as king over Israel. They made a covenant with him. Listen, being, giving, uh, giving your heart to Christ or, or being born again or, or getting saved, it, it's not a matter of you making Jesus king of your life. If you can make him king, then you can make him not king, right? It's not a matter of, of I'm putting him on the throne. I don't have that kind of authority. What it is, is it's a covenant between me and him. I'm making a covenant between me and him. And, and, and it says this, that David uh, actually is the one that makes the covenant. Jesus made the covenant for us on the cross, right? He died for every one of our sins. So he starts the covenant. But I want you to look at something real quick, what that covenant actually looks like. In Ephesians chapter 5, and I promise we'll get back to David, but I, we just got to start right, right? We got to start right. So in Ephesians chapter 5, it's a, it's a passage that Paul's preaching about marriage, but he's comparing marriage, the covenant of marriage, to the covenant of relationship with Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice a couple of key words in this covenant that, that stand out to me. It says this in Ephesians 5, 23, For a husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. We're not in charge of him. We don't make him king. We don't tell him what to do. He's in charge of us. Whenever I make a covenant with Christ, what I'm saying is I'm submitting my life to you. You are in charge. I'm not in charge. It says he's the savior of his body, the church. Verse 24, as the church, say me. me. Wow. So four of us said it. Um, let's try that again. As the church, everybody say me. me. Say I'm the church. Wow, that was very forceful that time. A little bit aggressive. So we're going to figure it out. We're going to figure it out. Sometimes you're a little bit too light. Sometimes a little too aggressive. We'll, follow, we'll dial it in in a minute. So we are the church. And here's what it says. The church does what? Submits to Christ. So wives, you should submit to your husbands and everything. We preach about this um, when we talk about marriage. And all the women right off the bat get mad at me. Though I'm not submitting to any man, you know. But then, but then I tell them, I tell all the wives, if the husband does his job, then we'll willingly, you're, you're going to be willing to submit because here's what the husband has to do. It says, for the husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. How did he do that? He gave up his life for her. So if a man is willing to sacrifice, so we enter into a covenant where there's two things happening. The, the church, the people, we submit but we are submitting to someone who's willing to sacrifice. And so that's what makes a covenant work. One is willing to lay down their life for you, and the other one's willing to submit. And so, and so right off the bat, how does, how does it work for me to be born again? How does it work for me to give my heart to Jesus Christ? What does it mean for me to really be a Christian? Here's what it means. It means you and I have to learn how to submit everything we have to Christ. Why? Because he's willing to sacrifice everything he has for us. He's willing to die, and so therefore I'm willing to submit. And so right off the bat, that's the, that's the gospel in a nutshell today. And we've just gone through three verses. We better hurry so we can get through the rest of them. We're going to go to, second, uh, we're gonna go to verses 4 through 6. As a matter of fact, I'm going to go ahead and skip verses uh, 4 and 5. Let's just go to 6. Basically, verses 4 and 5 just say that he began to reign when he was 30 and, um, in Hebron and over Judah, and then Israel picked him up five years later. So in verse 6, here's what it says. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off. 
thinking David cannot come in here. So really quickly, what was Jerusalem? Jerusalem that we know today is the capital of Israel. And, and everybody knows about Jerusalem. It's, it's been fought over for, for thousands of years, hundreds and thousands of years, where, where the, you know, the Jews and the Christians and the Muslims, they all fight over Jerusalem. Even to this day, it's a power struggle in the city of Jerusalem. But there was a time when Jerusalem was right smack dab in the middle of the nation of Israel, in the middle of the land that was promised to them, the middle of the land that they took over. And here's the problem. Jerusalem was a fortified city, so it was, it was a lot smaller then than it is now, but it had walls. It had walls. And, and scholars debate this a little bit. They either think that Israel conquered Jerusalem early on and then lost it, or they never conquered it at all. Either way, in David's time, there's a group of people called the Jebusites, and they control Jerusalem. And so right in the middle of the nation, it, it would be like if First Baptist came in and they just took over this section right here. And they said, this section is First Baptist, and we're going to put a TV right in front, and we're going to watch our service. And they got Buddy Champion right there watching TV. And, and you know how mad... We would be, no, um, we would conquer that section and take them over. Um, but, but it would be like, so we're trying, to do, we're trying to do our thing, but then there's another church happening right in the middle of what we're doing. And, and so, so what's happened is David walks up and, and David is all about Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, in the story that, that Pastor Nathan told us about where David kills Goliath, the Bible says even as a child, even as a young man, he chops off the head of Goliath, takes the head and runs to Jerusalem with it. I think he ran to Jerusalem to show it off, to say one day that city is going to be mine. Look what I did to this giant, and I'm going to do the same thing to you. I think that's what he was doing whenever he ran to the city. He's claiming that city is going to be his, and now as the king, he's going up and he wants to claim the city. But, but here's the problem. He's viewing this as kind of unfinished business. Everything else was conquered except for this one city. And, and when we're thinking about the gospel and we're thinking about the whole story, Israel comes to David and they said, we want to make a covenant with you. We want you to be our prince and our shepherd. We want you to be the, the king over us. Just like when we come to Christ and we're born again at the end of the message today, if you need that prayer, we'll pray with you for that. But here's what happens is sometimes we come to Christ and we get born again. But you know what? There are some unconquered strongholds that are still in our hearts. There are some areas in our life that we've never gained victory over. And so that's why sometimes we, we come to Christ and we cry and we beg and we say, God, please forgive me. I've, I've had this addiction or please forgive me. I've had this sin or please forgive me. I've had this, this issue in my life and you just quite can't quite get over it. It's been a struggle for a number of years. Does it mean you're not saved? No, it doesn't mean you're not saved. It just means there's an area, a fortified area... That, that set up shop in your life. And I want to look at where that comes from. There's a, there's a story in, in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to tell you about it. It's the story of Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve sinned. And when Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis chapter 3, uh, the, the Bible says that three things pop up in their life. In, in chapter 3 verse 7, it says that they had shame. So they covered themselves. 
they covered themselves. They were naked and they covered themselves because they, were, they had shame in their life. They were afraid, the Bible says. So they've got shame and then they've got fear. In verse 10, it says they hid from God and, and God says, why are you hiding from me? And they said, we were afraid. So they've got shame and they've got fear. And then in verse 12, whenever God says, why did you sin? The first thing Adam does is he blames somebody else. He's offended. So they've got shame, fear, and offense. And shame, fear, and offense become a fortified stronghold in your life that needs to be pulled down. It becomes a stronghold in your life that needs to be pulled down. Look at uh, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 19 says, An offended friend is harder to win back than a fortified city. Arguments separate friends like, gate, like a gate locked with bars. When we have offense in our life, or we have shame in our life, or we have fear in our life, it can become a stronghold in our life. That's why sometimes whenever we seem to struggle with the same sin over and over, the reason we're struggling with that same sin is because we've hidden that sin because of our shame. And we won't tell anybody. We won't get help. We won't, we won't get prayer. We won't do anything about it because we're so ashamed. I can't tell you how many times I've sat in a church service just like this and, and knowing there was sin in my heart and, and the preacher would give a message and, and they would call for people to come down for prayer and I knew I had sin in my life. But because I was so ashamed, I would never go get help with my sin. And I thought, I can just deal with it myself. I can just, I can fix it on my own. And I never did. And guess what? The sin kept coming back over and over and over. It wasn't until I was willing to do something about it that I was able to get some freedom in my life. How many times have we allowed fear? Listen, when, when COVID hit, good gracious, nobody knew what was going on and everybody was afraid of something. And, and, and I'll never forget how many people just lived in total fear. We, we've, got, we've got friends that don't go to this church, none of y'all, but we've got friends that, that we know of that would have babies and wouldn't allow their own parents to come see their newborn child. This is probably a year or two years after COVID, wouldn't allow their parents to see their newborn child because they were so afraid of what might happen. And so what they've done is they've built this fortified city called fear and it's set up shop right in the middle of their nation, right in the middle of their life. And then sometimes we, we get offended with people. And when we get offended with people, we get hurt by people. And, and what we do is we build up this fortified area and we don't let anybody in. We don't let anybody in because we're so offended. And so how many times have we seen someone say, I'm never going back to church again because that preacher did something or those people are a bunch of hypocrites. Or this. Listen, at the end of the day, we're all going to hurt each other's feelings at some point. Offense is going to happen at some point because we're humans and we're stupid and we say things that we shouldn't say and we do things that we shouldn't do. But what we do is sometimes we take that offense and we begin to build walls to keep us. We think we're protecting ourselves from being hurt. But in reality, what we're doing is we're keeping everybody out. We're keeping everybody out. And so let's figure out how to get some victory over these fortified cities because we've given our heart to Christ. We've made a covenant with God. But, but now we find this, this fortification, we find this stronghold in our life. And, and the Bible talks about pulling down strongholds. So let's talk about what that looks like for us. In, in 2 Samuel uh, 5, 7 through 9, let's get to that part. It says this, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. So that, that area of Jerusalem that is now called the city of David, that was just all there was back then. And David took it. He, he got victory over it. Um, and David said on that day, whoever, so this is telling how he did it in verse eight, 
whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold, called it the city of David, and built the city around it from the millow inward. So let's talk about that for a second. What did David do? This is very interesting. David said there's a water shaft that we've got to attack through. This is a very weird story. So you've got a fortified city, a walled city, but David found an area of weakness that he could get into the fortified city, and it was a water shaft. It's, it's nowadays, it was discovered by a man um, whose last name was Warren. I don't remember his first name, and they call it Warren's Shaft, but, but it was discovered it's a real thing. And what it is, is it's a, it's a hole that comes in out of the city. You can go down into a cave, and there's a hole that drops down 42 feet. For reference, 42 feet from, from the floor to the ceiling right there at the very top of the ceiling in this building is about 21 or 22 feet. So imagine double that. And that's how tall this is. It's a very tight and narrow hole. But what it does is it opens up into a, a, a natural spring and it was like a well. They could lower buckets down and draw water up. If the city was ever under siege or ever in a war, they had a, way, a secret way to get water and they could, they could withstand an enemy. But David found it. David found it. And here's what David said. He said, the way we're going to get into the city is through the water shaft. So he had to have some guys, actually one of his nephews, Joab. Joab goes in and he, he climbed the 42 feet. Now, I'm not claustrophobic all the time. But I do get a little claustrophobic when it comes to people laying on top of me like a dog pile. Uh-uh. I bit a girl in sixth grade one time because they had too many people. We were playing keep away with the football and all these kids jumped on top of me and there was this girl's knee right in my face and I bit the fire out of it because I got so claustrophobic. But another place I get a little claustrophobic is, in, and I, would, I think there's part of me that likes risk and there's part of me that likes adventure. And so I think going into a cave is a lot of fun. But if you ever get me into a cave, and I don't know if you've ever seen people do this, where they go into caves and they're in water and they go under the rock and then they get stuck. I saw a guy the other day and he got stuck on YouTube and he goes, okay, I'm stuck now. And he's filming himself. And if I just shimmy a little bit and I'm, and I'm hyperventilating on the other end, I was like, nope, nope, not me, Jack. So, so Joab has to go and go, he scales 42 feet to be able to get into the city, I guess to open the doors to allow everybody in. And so it's a very interesting story here of how they conquered the city. And so I just quickly want to tell you two things about Warren Shaft. Number one is it is an extreme measure. It's an extreme measure to be able to get victory. It's a 42-foot vertical uh, climb inside of a rock. And here's the thing. Victory over strongholds often require extreme measures. You got a stronghold in your life. You got a stronghold of offense in your life. You got a stronghold of shame from sin in your life. You got a stronghold of fear in your life. It's probably going to take some extreme measures to get victory over it. And you need to start getting comfortable with the fact that I'm going to have to push myself past my comfort zone to be able to get into this victory that I need. Jesus said this. He said, if you've got an offense with somebody before you come to church to worship, you go make it right with that person and then come to worship. I don't know very many people that actually do that. Most of us just get offended and we hold on to it. We hold on to it. Jesus, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5, and I don't think I put the verse up here. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said this, If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. 
If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. He said it'd be better to go to heaven with one eye and one hand than to go to hell. Think about that for a second. Jesus is advocating... Now, please do not cut off your hands. Jesus is advocating extreme measures to get a victory. There's, there's been times I've read, there's a, there's a book by a guy named James Clear. Um, it's called Atomic Habits. It's a very interesting book about habits. But one of the things that James says in his book about, um, about finding victory over bad habits is he, he talks about taking extreme measures. And, and one of the things he talked about one time was a guy that, that watched too much TV. And the guy was just addicted to TV. And every time he came home, he watched TV all the time. And he would just waste hours of his day watching TV. And he said, so what he started doing is unplugging his TV, taking it off the wall, and stick it in the closet. And he said, now whenever he comes home, if he wants to watch TV, he has to go through the effort of pulling the TV out, hanging it on the wall, and plugging it in. And so not only was the guy addicted to TV, but he's probably a little bit lazy, and he didn't want to go through all the work. It was an extreme measure, right? An extreme measure to get victory over a stronghold in his life. And so sometimes we have to take extreme measures. There's another thing that that was, is that that Warren Shaft... The other thing it was is it was an exposure. It was a, an exposure to weakness in the city. It was an opening to the heart of the city. So, so what does that mean for us? Not only do we have to be willing to take some extreme measures, we've got to be willing to be exposed in order to get healing and victory. We've got to be willing to be exposed. And, and what does that mean? Well, I tell you this all the time. We've got to be willing to confess and repent. We've got to be willing to confess and repent. We cannot view confession and repentance as something shameful. We can't view it as something that we can't do. We've got to view it as something that's essential to the Christian walk. That's why we have prayer down here every Sunday morning. And our prayer team knows whatever you pray for down here stays down here. We don't go around talking to everybody about what you pray about. Because we need to have an outlet to be able to, 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 be able to, to expose some of the stuff in our life. David asked God, he said, God, search my heart. If there's anything in me, show it to me. Like, let's, let's expose it and let's get it in the clear. Jesus said this, uh, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He's talking about the word of God. But whenever I open up the word of God and it begins to expose parts of my life, it's truth that sets me free, not hiding behind my walls that sets me free. It's exposing it. It's going and talking to somebody and saying, yeah, I've got, I've got an addiction to this thing. I've got a sin problem in this area. It's going to somebody and saying, I'm struggling with fear and, and I've, I've cut off family members and I've cut off relationships and I've, I've cut off going to church or going to places I should go because I'm so afraid. It's going to someone saying, I'm, I'm really offended, I'm really hurt, and I need to learn how to forgive someone. I was, I was listening to a guy named John Bevere. He's an author and, and, a, and a speaker. And one of the things John Bevere is talking about is he was talking about how he got hurt by a, a, a pastor that he had worked for, and he was, he was very hurt, he was very offended, and he held on to it for a number of years. And he said eventually, um, he thought he had gotten some victory over it. He said, I went to a church service after a number of years. He said, I went to a church service, and, and, and in the church service, I went to the altar, and I prayed, and I cried, and I wept, and I just thought, yes, I've got victory over this offense, and I've, I've released him, and I've forgiven him. He said, and then the next thing that happened was, I saw the preacher somewhere, and when I saw the preacher, I got mad. He said, when I saw him, I, I became angry. And he said, my wife began to notice that my countenance would change when I would think about this preacher or when his name would come up. And he said, what happened was I wasn't willing. And, and my wife would say, are you okay? And he said, yeah, I'm fine. And he wasn't willing to tell anybody that he was offended and he was hurt. His pride held on to the offense. And he says, it wasn't until I was willing to tell someone 
I was willing to confess it and willing to get it right that I got victory over it. So today, you may, you may be a Christian, but even as a Christian, you may have a stronghold in your life. And I want you to know it may take some extreme measures. It may take some confession. It may take some prayer. It may take stepping out of your comfort zone a little bit and talking to somebody, but you can get victory over those strongholds in your life. So the next thing that happens in David's story is verse 10. This is where we're going to pick it up. It says, And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. This is awesome, right? David became greater and greater. Isn't that what we want? We want to become greater and greater. We want to grow in glory from glory to glory. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, super random gift, and carpenters and masons who built David a house. So he had a cedar house. He had a hunting lodge, basically. Um, and David, this is cool. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel. If you're underlining, I want you to underline that too. Because it says David knew that who established him? The Lord established him. He didn't establish himself. The Lord established him and he knew that. He knew that God was responsible. So that brings me to verse 13. That's not good. Verse 13 says, And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. We're going to skip the names of his sons and daughters, but I just want you to look at something real quick. David's greatness made him susceptible to the sin of caving into culture. David knew that God established him, but he still took wives and concubines. Now, why would you take wives and concubines? Here's why. Because in the culture of that day, in the culture around Israel, kings would take more and more women to be a part of their harem because the bigger their harem was and the more kids they had, the better chance of of longevity of keeping that kingdom they had. So in other words, even if I die, I know someone else is going to take over because I've got 70 sons. Does that make sense? I have produced a a wealth of individuals to take over for me, so I'm ensuring my line will keep going. Here's the problem. God established David, but David didn't trust God enough, so he went and got all the wives and concubines he could grab. And the problem with this is, is he's caving to the culture of the time. And, and the Bible tells us in, in Romans 12, 2, it says, Don't copy the behavior and customs of the world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good, pleasing, and perfect will. Also in Deuteronomy chapter 17, the Bible says, If you have a king, God speaking says, If you have a king, don't let that king multiply wives, because they will eventually draw him away from worshiping me. This is a problem, and David establishes it right here from the beginning. He caves to culture, and this sin of caving to culture would end up biting him later on, whenever, whenever he would, um, later on he, he has his own sons turn against him. He goes from collecting women that were unmarried to one day trying to collect a woman that was married in Bathsheba. And so this sin begins to perpetuate throughout his his life, and then his son Solomon. What David did, um, what David did in moderation. The old saying is, "Your children will do in excess." And Solomon, David, while David maybe had twenty women in his harem, Solomon had uh, what was it like seven hundred or a thousand women in his harem. And Solomon went crazy, and he worshipped other gods, and he sacrificed his kids to Molech, and he did all kinds of crazy mess. So, so we want to see something here. Just because God's doing something good in your life 
doesn't mean you're not going to come under attack. So you need to stay ready and, and, and don't allow new strongholds to be built after you've conquered the old ones. In, in verse 18, as well, we'll skip down to, verse 18 says this, Now the Philistines, who've long been the enemy of Israel, long been the enemy of David, Goliath was a Philistine. I told you, um, I told you last week that, that David killed a hundred Philistines in one battle by himself. So, so, so there's Philistines and David are not friends anymore. David actually lived with the Philistines for a little while and then turned against them. So they really don't like David at all. So in verse 18, it says, The Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim, and David inquired of the Lord. That's important. So, so he's gone from choosing his own way and following culture, and now he's kind of getting back on track. He's going to listen to God. He's going to talk to God. And David inquired of the Lord and said, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said, David, the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of this place shall be called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols, and David and his men carried them away. A couple of quick things I want you to note here. The word Baal, um, the word Baal is used in a variety of ways in the Old Testament. I'm setting you up for another sermon series I'm preaching later on, maybe in, in August. But, but the word Baal is, is, is used in a couple of different ways. One, it was a god. It was a false god, the god Baal. It was used that way. It was also sometimes used as a general term for false gods. Um, so you'll hear people talk about in the Bible as you read the Old Testament, you'll hear them say things like, um, and they served the Baals, like in plural. In, in other words, it wasn't, um, it wasn't like Baal and his brother and his sister. It was like... Just the, the other gods. They served a bunch of foreign gods. And then the third way it was used was just as the literal term. So the literal term for Baal means um, possessor or master. And so sometimes it was used like that, that someone would, would be called a, um, a, a possessor. It would be like um, nowadays if, if you walked in the room and, and I'd been talking about you and I said, speak of the devil. I'm not really meaning that you're the devil, Right. Um, some of you maybe, but not all of you. And so, um, so speak of the devil, and, and, and so you got those terms. It doesn't really mean that you're Satan. It's just a term. And, and so that's, that's what they were looking at here. So whenever he says this, he says that, that he's talking about God, but he says, Baal Perazim, master of the breakthrough. We just sang a song. We just sang a song, um, and, I, and I'm going to get, I don't know where Pastor Jonathan is, but it's called Praise Before My Breakthrough. I got it, guys. I did it. Everybody, everybody here is like, wow, good job, Gabriel. You had a name. Um, I never know the names of songs. I don't know the names of my sermons half the time. I certainly don't know the names of songs. And so I'm always like, you know, the breakthrough song. You know the one we just sang? And it drives the worship team crazy. So I got it right, guys. It's praise before my breakthrough. Um, but we just sang that song, praise before my breakthrough. And, and here's the thing that I believe for today. I believe today as you come in, We've given our hearts to Christ. Some of us might do that today for the first time, or we may recommit our lives to Christ today. We may re-up that covenant with him. And, and then some of us have found a stronghold in our life. And we know that there's some, some extreme measures that we may need to go through to get some victory over that stronghold. But I want to tell you that we serve a God that is the master of the breakthrough. A God that is a master of the breakthrough, that will break through your enemy like a flood. 
I don't know if you've ever seen a tidal wave hit. I don't know if you've ever seen any videos of that where, where a tidal wave hit or where a river overflows its banks. Um, I went to Mississippi right after Hurricane Katrina. I was down there doing some, some relief work, and we were taking food to the National Guard. And because we were doing that, they allowed us past the barriers to get down on the coast. And I remember going down, and I remember seeing a McDonald's. And the only way I knew it was a McDonald's is because there was a big sign with the, with the golden arches, but everything on the slab was completely gone. It was clean. The only thing that was left were those, you remember the old McDonald's that had the chairs that were bolted into the slab and they were the tourney chairs? Okay. Well, four of us remember that probably, but, but they had the tourney chairs. There was a handful of those tourney chairs still bolted into the slab. The kitchen was gone. The playground was gone. The bricks were gone. The roof was gone. Everything was gone, completely wiped out. We serve a God that whenever we face an enemy that can completely break through the enemy, he can completely bring healing and, and victory into your life. And we'll pick back up in verse 22. So David gets a victory. But 22 says this, and this is where we're going to end the message today. And the Philistines came up yet again. This is the, the last part. The Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So he got a victory over them. And, and how did he get that victory? He prayed and, and God said, you go fight them. And he went and fought them and he got a victory. And now they've come back. Isn't that like the enemy never wants to leave you alone, always wants to attack. And just whenever you think you got the victory, just whenever you think you've gotten over something, you get tempted again. Just whenever you, you think you've gotten, gotten out of that bad situation, another situation arises. And the Philistines came up again and they spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, listen to this, you shall not go up. So the first time God says, David, go get them, sick them, right? And David goes after him. The second time, God says, no, don't go. Look at what he says. Go around to the rear and come up uh, against them opposite the balsam trees. This is so cool. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. I'm going to just pause there for a second. Well, let's read this one more verse. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. That's where the retirement home was, was in Gezer. I don't know. That may not be true. I don't know. I didn't actually look that up. So I want you to notice something. The first time God says, go get them. David goes, he fights, he wins. The second time God says, wait. Instead, I want you to go sit under some trees and I want you to wait and I want you to be patient and I want you to just see what God's going to do. Now, I, I find this interesting. Two little things or a couple little notes on that passage. Number one little note is this. God doesn't have to bring the victory the same way every time. Just because God did something in 1980 or in 1950 or in 1900 or in 1850 doesn't mean he's doing the exact same thing today. God can do new stuff if he wants to. Right? The, the Bible says this. Um, the, the Bible says that uh, in Isaiah chapter 43, it says, forget all that. Forget the past. Um, it's nothing to compare to what I'm going to do for I'm about to do something new. So God says, I can do some new stuff. But what we do as, as humans is we'll build churches and denominations based around one move of God. 
one thing God does and we'll build and then we'll separate from other people and we don't like them because they don't believe in this one thing God did and and, and we start fighting and, and we start going against each other because we get hung up. We get hung up on how God did it. Sometimes what we do is not as churches, just as individuals, is we don't recognize a move of God because it's not happening the way you thought it was going to happen. Last time, last time when I was financially struggling and I prayed about it, then I got a check in the mail. Someone came and just gave me some money. And and so this time I'm going to pray about it and I'm going to watch the mailbox. I don't know if you've got a dog or not, but I've got a dog. I love my dog. And Nola's the sweetest dog in the world. And, And Nola will not eat off of your plate. She absolutely won't eat off your plate. She's really good about that. But she has learned that there are certain foods that if we don't finish them, we'll give her a bite off of our plate. So what Nola does is whenever you're eating, she will come and sit and look at you. And she'll look at the plate. And if you're sitting on the couch, she'll get up on the couch and she'll just look at the plate. And everything in the world could be going on around her. The house could be burning down. A bad guy could be coming in shooting somebody. But Nola has her eyes fixed on that plate. And then the drool starts coming. Right? So she's drooling on your leg. And she's just staring at the plate. Why? Because she has learned to expect to get something a certain way. So there's times when instead of me giving it to her from my plate, I'll go drop something in her food bowl and she won't go get it because she's not thinking. She's still looking at the stupid plate. I mean, oh, the plate's empty. The blessing is in the bowl. The plate is empty, but she doesn't recognize the new thing that has just happened. Now, some of you are like, yeah, but Gabriel, what you're doing is you're setting us up for God to do weird stuff, and now we got to okay it because you said God can do something new. No, I'm not. If it's, listen, I'm not into weird stuff. You start barking like a dog, I'm going to put a leash on you. Okay, so don't do that. Here's, here's what I am into. If the Bible says it, I can believe it. If it's something that happens in God's word, then I can believe it. Now, if you're just making up something on your own, I don't have to believe it. But if it's in God's word, and it may not be comfortable to me, it may be new to me, right? So, so here's what the Bible says in Isaiah 43. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish that verse. I didn't finish it. Verse 19 says, For I'm about to do something new. See, I've already begun. Don't you see it? I will make a pathway in the wilderness. I will create rivers in the dry wasteland. One of the things God says is, Don't you see it? Aren't you paying attention? See, sometimes what we do is we rush into battle so fast that we forget to wait at the trees and listen for God to move. And God's saying, if you'll just be patient and just listen, if you'll just keep your eyes open, if you'll just be watching, then I will move. And when I move, then you act. You wait for me to move and then you act. The Bible says this, it says, um, rouse yourself. To rouse means to stir up. It's an action based on a decision, not instinct or persuasion. In other words, I'm going to decide right now, before God ever moves, I'm going to decide right now that when God moves, when I hear his voice, when I see his hand, when I hear the footsteps in the trees, I'm going to decide right now that no matter what my neighbor does, no matter what my family does, no matter what the people sitting on the aisle next to me do, I'm going to get up and I'm going to move. I'm going to act when I see God moving and I'm going to be on the watch for it. Listen, I I love the fact that we're Gateway Family Church. I love that fact 
that we come in here as family. I love the fact that we come in here and we have a relationship with each other and we have a little party time and we give you cheap snacks and you walk around and you shake each other's hands and you hug each other's necks and you do all of that fun stuff. But can I tell you something? The whole point of us being here is not just to have a relationship with each other. The whole point of us being here is to be looking for God to move. And when he moves, when we perceive it, we act upon that. Here's the other thing it says. It says, rouse who? It says, rouse yourself. Rouse yourself. I love that. Here's why I love it. It takes the pressure off of me. It's not my job to rouse you. It's not my job to stir you up. It's not the worship team's job to stir you up. Now, do we want them to sing well? Do we want them to do well and lead us into worship? Absolutely we do. Do, do you want me to preach well? Yeah, I'm going to try my best, right? But, but it's not our job to rouse you. When you see God move, when I see God move, I can't wait on someone else to stir me up. I can't wait on my dad to come in and tell me it's time to go. I can't wait on Pastor Nathan to come in and say, hey, are you paying attention? I've got to be paying attention and I've got to stir myself up. The Bible doesn't say that David grabbed the army. It doesn't say that he went to Joab and said, boys, it's time to go. The Bible says that David got up. And I just believe that when David got up, everybody else said, it's time to go. Rouse yourself. Won't you stand up with me this morning? If my prayer team could come down to the front, we're going to pray. And I think there's a couple of areas that we can pray for today. I, you may have a, a variety of areas. You may have a variety of areas. That's totally cool. We want to pray for anything. I tell people all the time, I, when I was a youth pastor, I used to do this. And, and I had one kid, literally on one night, we had prayer. And I had one kid on this side of the room that said, that said Gabriel, I need to make a C on my next test or my parents are going to ground me for a month. And I said, we can pray about that. And on the other side of the room, I had a kid that said, Gabriel, my dad just went to prison. And I don't know what to do with my life. I said, we can pray about that. We want to pray for anything. We want to pray for anything. But I feel like, spiritually, I feel like there's a couple of areas that we need to hit today. And so I'm going to call these out. And if it's you today, here's what I want you to do. I believe God is moving. I hope you recognize it. And there may be an extreme measure today. Maybe that extreme measure is killing a little bit of pride, killing a little bit of shame, and stepping out. Maybe that's what you need to do today. Coming down to the front and let someone pray with you. But here's the three areas. I believe that some people today, you need to make a covenant with Jesus as your king, as your shepherd, as the prince over your life. You need to submit to him. You've never submitted to him. There's things that you want him to do for you, but you've never submitted. You've never given him everything you've got. Can I tell you, he died for you. He loves you that much. He's worthy. He is worthy to be submitted to. So if you need to make that covenant with him, if you need to be born again today, give your heart to Jesus Christ. I want to pray with you about that. The second thing is this. Maybe you're facing a stronghold today. Maybe you're facing a stronghold today. Maybe there's an area of your life you just can't quite get victory over. And you just need someone to pray with you about that. We want to pray with you today. And we are believing that God is going to set you free. And the third thing is this, and it ties into all of them. And that is, you need a breakthrough. 
Maybe it's not a stronghold. Maybe you're just facing a situation today. Maybe you're facing an enemy today. Maybe it's a financial issue or it's a, it's a health issue. It's not a, I'm not ashamed and I'm, I'm not offended and, and I'm not fearful, but it's something I'm facing. Maybe it's a business decision you're facing and you need God to show up big time. You need that breakthrough God, the master of breakthrough. If that's you today, we want to pray with you. So we're going to sing that song. Are we going to sing the praise before our breakthrough? See, I got it right. We're going to sing that song. And as they sing that song, if God is speaking to your heart about any one of those areas or anything else that you need prayer for, I want you to slip out of your seat, come down to the front, and we want to pray with you this morning. And then we'll dismiss after that.